Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Grant Street Experience. I'm your host, Grant Irvin. Uh, we have a uh, another fun episode of the Grant Street Experience here for everyone and for our listeners. Uh, we got Rebecca Kiernan back with us here in the in this in this in the proverbial studio. Rebecca, how are you doing? Morning. Morning. And our fabulous guest today is uh, Andrew Salkin, uh, founding principal from Resilient Cities Catalyst. Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's great. Where, where are you coming to us from today? Where's, where's your studio? That's great. Thanks for asking. I am in Brooklyn, New York, in a neighborhood called uh, Clinton Hill. Uh, very walkable neighborhood. I think if you uh, came here from Pittsburgh, it would look familiar. That's terrific. That's terrific. So for folks listening in, uh, Andrew uh, is, uh, was part of the, the critical team uh, for our work with the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative uh, going back, uh, I guess it was what, Rebecca, 2015 that we started kind of the engagement with uh, 100 RC. Um, so he was, uh, I'm going to call you one of our resilience Sherpas, uh, Andrew, in terms of kind of guiding us through the process um, and being a, a mentor and a confidant in kind of helping to develop uh, the city of Pittsburgh and our, our uh, journey in resilience. So we're really excited to talk to you about uh, that experience and, uh, you know, some of the things that you guys have been up to uh, since uh, the transition with 100 Resilient Cities. Um, but maybe while to get started, uh, tell us a little bit about kind of yourself and, and your background um, uh, and, and what brought you to kind of the work that you're doing currently. Sure. I, uh, I grew up in Philadelphia, so uh, other side of the state, Eagles fan. Um, neither team is playing this weekend, sadly. Um, and get that out of the way know, real quick. That's, that's important. Just, um, and when I was in Philadelphia, you know, I grew up in the middle of a city and I really enjoyed it. It wasn't until I left Philadelphia and went to college in, at the University of Wisconsin that I started to realize, wait a second, I'm a real city person. I like cities. I like urban. I like concrete and traffic lights. And I, it really dawned on me when I was living in Telluride, which is a ski town, and uh, the nearest traffic light was 65 miles away. I was like, okay. I need, I need walkable, I need traffics, I need potholes. So I moved back to Philadelphia and after some time, I ended up going to graduate school at the um, University of Syracuse at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. And, and there I studied government and I really wanted to work in a politicized government environment. And I ended up getting a job at a grad school at New York City. And in New York City, I worked in the deep, deep parts of the city and um, and I learned how to procure, I learned how to clean, I learned how to hire. I worked at the Department of Transportation when 9-11 happened. I was appointed to oversee the, the recovery of Lower Manhattan from a transportation regulatory perspective. Um, after that, I got an opportunity to run the Taxi and Limousine Commission for New York, which is another regulatory entity, but also full of very interesting people and challenges. Um, and out of that, I ended up working at the Department of Finance. So at the Department of Finance, I worked on not just collecting city's money, but um, how do you leverage city revenue, collection of revenue, or not collecting of revenue to push public policy and really achieve some of the goals that the city might be looking to achieve um, through tax policy. So I, I kind of like to say I can 
taxi and I can tax. Um, <laughs> and I took that work and I left New York City to join the 100 Resilient Cities project. And for me, that was really an exciting moment because it took all this very different work that I did across all these different agencies in a big city like New York and helped me ask this question, does it matter what I did in New York to other cities around the world? And that work uh, quickly proved that the problems that New York had, regardless of how big or, or what particular challenges had, were actually very similar to the same challenges that cities like Pittsburgh and cities all over the world really had. And, and that's one of the things I think we didn't know going into that work, but we were really surprised to see is you can take people from almost any city and have the same conversation. And ultimately, the reason that um, people, I think, have the same issues is because the problems are kind of the same in wherever you go in a city. It's, it's about the people. It's about their job. It's about how they get to their job. It's about how they, what they do when they live at home. It's about how much money they have and what resources they have to do fun things that um, make a city great. And, and then ultimately, what are the, how does the city deal with things and times when it's not so great. Um, and it's more, cities are more the same than not, even though they look very, very different in pictures and photos and kind of, you know, when you first go to visit. But um, that work was really interesting. And at 100 Resilient Cities, the work we did was really working with cities to create a plan, begin to set up the transformation of thinking about their cities differently. Uh, this is the work that Pittsburgh did. And then Pittsburgh kept that work going into the implementation, but we didn't get a chance to do that work with a lot of cities on projects and implementation. And so for us, um, when 100 Resilient Cities sunsetted after we worked with 100 cities, a bunch of us got together and we wanted to keep that work going and really work with cities on not just thinking about their challenges, but implementing on their challenges. And that's why we created Resilient Cities Catalyst. I'm now a principal there. Um, one of the founding principles, and we work with uh, urban places, not just cities, urban places and spaces, mm -hmm. helping them uh, really realize their vision and becoming um, who they want to be with the assets and resources they have available to them at the table. And uh, it's been a pretty exciting time, and we're celebrating our one-year anniversary next week. That's awesome. Congratulations. You know, one thing, Andrew, could you talk for folks a little bit about the, the 100 Resilient Cities program? We had Jordan Fishbach, who is our partner here from RAND, uh, the RAND Corporation, on a, a, a few months back talking about it. But it'd be interesting to hear from you, um, you know, being a part of the organization, um, what was both kind of the, the startup and the, you know, the development of the program, but also um, the experience of kind of uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about my experience there is that all cities have a common language, right? Um, you know, whether it's procurement or, you know, water issues or transportation. Um, but talk a little bit about the evolution of the program um, and, and some of those uh, unique experiences you had kind of working with each city. Yeah, sure. Uh, I haven't thought about that question in quite some time. Um, it's a, but a little it, introspective. It's a, good, it's a good question. Thank you for asking it. Um, so one of the things that was exciting about 100 Resilient Cities is um, this is going you know, back to when it started in 2013. Um, and the question, the challenge by the Rockefeller Foundation was go work with 100 cities. Cities need to figure out how to govern differently. Otherwise, they're just, there's too many problems. They're not really doing it well and things are just gonna get worse. So go, go see if you can work with them and figure out a new way of doing things. 
And resilience can serve as your kind of starting point of a dialogue and a conversation. So right off the bat, it was like, okay, how do we work with a hundred? Do you just start with a hundred? Are you, do you get really involved? Do you kind of let the cities do what they need to do? And there was a lot of interesting debate about that. And ultimately we decided we're going to invite cities to participate. We started um, mainly driven by the press office. They're like, do a third. So we kind of started with uh, about 30 cities in the first cohort. And then we're like, um, okay, now what do we do? And many of the cities who were part of the cohort said, well, what's resilience? And early days, you know, resilience back then had a lot of different definitions. It was, you know, the only time I heard anyone talk about it was usually in the city, it was like the IT engineers talking about the resilience of their their network and their fiber. And you're like, okay, that's not what we're talking about. Um, we wanted to understand how to talk about resilience without actually using the word resilience. So that was hard to do. And we asked our cities and our partners to help us begin to define this word. And when you looked at what the UN was doing at the time, it was very much about resilience is about disasters. And the way you become more resilient is after something bad happens, how do you quickly recover? And mm -hmm. We thought that's good, but that wasn't good enough because what we knew and what the work that the Rockefeller Foundation had done before 100 Resilient Cities is we knew that part of recovering quickly after a disaster is actually doing the work before the disaster so that you're better prepared for that to happen. And I often thought about it, it's like, what are you doing? What's the workout you're doing so that, you know, no matter what challenge you face on your commute to work, you know, you're ready for it because you're in shape, you're stronger, you're, you're physically more healthy. And so we began to ask this push back on this movement about risk reduction and really trying to say, no, resilience is something that's a little different. Um, mm. That includes risk reduction, but it's something that's greater. So those grant were some of the early challenges of just like, how do you kind of, what's the definition of it? And then how do you actually bring cities into this program? And then, um, as you know, part of the the work we did was hiring these chief resilience officers and, and it was an interesting partnership and that we did with cities and it's one of the things that I think worked out really well, which is we gave cities money and they had to hire somebody. And often they're kind of like, well, you hire the person. And we're like, well, no, you hire the person. And one of the things we thought was really important from the very beginning was whatever the work is, it has to be of the city, by the city, for the city. It's not of the Rockefeller Foundation in New York for the city um by us and mm -hmm. and that often meant that things sometimes went slower uh often meant that prioritizations of the city trumped priorities that we might think that are important but i think ultimately that made the program much stronger and the work became institutionalized and and that was something that worked out um, i think quite well um and then I think we had a big problem of, well, now that there's a chief resilience officer and now that they wanna be a part of the program, what is it that they're doing? And I think you mentioned this idea of common vocabulary of cities, um, whether it's procurement, whether it's budgets, whether it's capital, whether it's you know transportation or water or whatever it might be. But one of the things we had to think about was how do these resilience officers begin to communicate with each other? And what we realized is like, putting everyone through a common process. And this is one of the big things we had early fights with cities. This is like, they're like, we're in charge of us. Don't tell us what to do. We're gonna do it on our own. And what our pushback was, was we're not telling you what to do. We're just asking you to go through a series of exercises where you make determinations. And I think you'll remember this process well because it's part 
good, part painful, and, and a whole lot of learning experience for everybody engaged. But we asked every city, like, understand what your risks are. We're not going to tell you what your risks are. Understand what your risks are. Understand who your stakeholders are and figure out who are the people are that are important, both in government and outside government. And then we said, you know, understand what resources and assets you have available to you and then put it all together and, and figure out where you want to go. Have a vision, have a strategy, have a purpose. And, and in many ways, that's kind of what we asked every city to do. But by doing that, every city that came through the program had a similar vocabulary when it came to resilience. They were able to say, these are the things that I'm concerned about. These are my shocks and stresses. Uh, these are the stakeholders that I'm working with. And this is what I have resources for. And this is what I don't have resources for. And then it allowed them to begin the cities to communicate with each other uh, across kind of from a shared common understanding point. Um, at least that's what I thought we were doing. I don't know, Grant and Rebecca, is that is that fair to say? And do you guys feel that way? And is it still playing out that way? Yeah, I mean, Rebecca, what's some of your reflections on, on the process? I mean, having to help manage that process. I mean, what's some of your takeaways? Um, I mean, I keep thinking about it in like the context of what's happening right now. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that the, the process that we went through going through the shocks and stresses, everything that we had outlined has kind of played, has played true, um, in 2020 and 2021. Um, so, I mean, I think while no one was necessarily prepared for this big shock that happened, um, which I think is now more of like a mega stress, um, we were able to kind of jump, get ahead of it, right? So like we had outlined our shocks and stresses. We knew that we had racial and economic inequities. Uh, we knew that we had a fragmentation problem. And I feel like the, all of that is playing out now. And it's put us in, I guess, a little bit better of a position to be able to foresee it. And, and maybe not, maybe we weren't in a place where we could prepare for it. But now we're at, we at least respond to it and knew what it was. Um, so I feel like we've been a little bit further ahead and having the um, programs in place and the systems in place and understanding the, the stresses um, to, to respond a little bit better. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the process was super valuable. It got people thinking about these issues. We had a disease outbreak on our list, um, which is kind of interesting to look back on that. It was a small one and it wasn't talked about much, but um, it was in there. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, th I thought the process, it was really tedious at the time for sure. Um, but it got us out, you know, into the into neighborhoods. We had a couple of community sessions. Um, we had a lot of stakeholder engagement. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it, it at least prepared us for like the language of, you know, how to deal with these things now. Grant, I don't know if you have you have any other thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, just to follow up on two things you said, like there's for both of you, I, uh, one, the idea of going through because the, the rigors of the process, like I think that, that having to go through that is a good thing um, for any city because it allows you to take kind of the introspective look, but also look for where those dots need to be connected inside of an organization in order to address, you know, whatever the challenges are. Um, and, and I think, you know, you're as a result, then you're better prepared because you know who to pick up uh, when you pick up the phone, who to call for certain issues. And that's one of the biggest things, Andrew, back to your point about like, uh, you know, reducing the time of recovery, um, right? There's that refractory period and you're trying to strengthen that so you can get back to kind of a normal operations point. Um, but Rebecca, you just said something I thought was fascinating, the mega stress. Like, is that kind of where we're at 
with the pandemic, like it started as a shock event. Um, right. and, and we talk a lot about that, uh, that language of shocks and stressors, you know, the, the long enduring challenges versus the immediate and negative impacts. But like, are we in, in a, a, you just coined a new term, Rebecca, a mega stress. I just made it up. It's probably not. Well, <laughs> no, I, I, I like, I like it too. I, I will offer, um, I was doing some thinking, I was trying to think where in at least U.S. history is something like COVID, um, what's the most you know, similar thing to it? And I think you know, we could ask, what, what was the last mega stress we really had? And, and, I, and I came up with, I think the last mega stress we had, again, I wasn't alive, was probably World War II. And the definition of a mega stress would be, you know, something that's caused by something else. So we have the health issue, but the response to the health issue, the war has led to all these other systems being drawn in and being really challenged to their limits. And what makes it also harder, and this is what I think makes it a mega stress, is while you're still in response mode, you're starting to do recovery. And I'm not exactly sure recovery is the right word here. We're starting yeah. to do evolution. It's like we closed everything and then we slowly, we realized that was an overreaction or people become healthier and they open up a little bit. So that's what I was thinking about. And then it's interesting because this is one of the things that, you know, if you think back to World War II and what we know, or at least we've heard about, uh, at least I've heard about World War II and where the country was, it was a unifying moment that brought people together, that focused the energy of people, um, the economy, um, the support systems in the communities and how we work together. And and it's really an interesting contrast to this mega stress where we feel not necessarily marching in, it feels like we're in the same boat, but we're all rowing in a different direction. And, mm -hmm. and it's just gonna make it really hard to make that recovery happen um, in, in a concerted effort. And, and I think, you know, whatever the direction is that we should be going, you, you, you one would think we missed this great opportunity to be in this together um, and, and really get the most, you know, the most out of our society to really respond to this crisis. You know, that's interesting, actually, for both of you. I mean, um, I it kind of flips the script a little bit. Like, everybody's been talking about, and I, we just got a couple requests for interviews earlier today uh, about, like, our, rec our recovery plan, right? And, uh, and we had a guest on, uh, Ken Thompson, who was part of our resilience, uh, Pittsburgh kind of advisory group. And, um, you know, he was, he was commenting about, we need to think of this in a long haul. Like everybody is, is everybody thinking about this in too short, too short of a time frame in terms of, you know, it's going to be all back to normal by the summer or by the fall, but actually it's, you know, used, I think an interesting analogy, like world war II, um, there's a longer time horizon that we need to have within our, our scope. Um, you know, you think about like the Potsdam and Malta and, you know, kind of the, the conferences that help shape uh, po post-industrial or post-Europe, post right? Um, and, and is there a need for like a, a, a longer time horizon, but also a ways to create a new architecture? Yeah, well, that, that, the answer is yes, it has to happen. And, and this is this issue of normal. And are we trying to return to normal? Or are we trying to return 
to what the new normal will be. And I don't know how you return to something that's new. Um, so I kind of like that paradox, return to something we don't know. Um, and this is, I think, the role of a resilience officer. And I'm sure these are things that you all are thinking about in Pittsburgh, which is the problems that you're seeing existed before COVID, some mm -hmm. of them, right? The people that were less healthy have been more impacted by COVID, but they were less healthy before COVID. Uh, your economic um, challenges were there. Um, you know, what's really interesting, I think, about this particular recovery in, you know, Pittsburgh is just like all the other cities around, you know, it seems like around the country where, you know, at its peak, you know, unemployment across the wages, across, regardless of what wages you were, well over, I think, you know, 10%, I think in Pittsburgh, it, um, I think it hit 12% total, but um, it was 13% for high wagers and 17% for low wage earners. And here we are, you know, you know, eight months in, nine months in, 10 months in. And for the high wagers, the, the moment's almost like the economy's already up Yeah. for high wagers. There are already more jobs than you had before, but for low wage jobs, it's still down. It's still, I think it was down 40%. Now it's at, you know, 20%. Um, so the question is, and this is one of the things, you know, the mayor's always asked and he's always put, you know, Pittsburgh today in context with Pittsburgh, uh, the steel, the steel industry, Pittsburgh, which is, how do we start thinking about that recovery? And then if we're just trying to return the normal and normal means what we had before, then it means those same communities, those same low wage workers are gonna be as exposed to the next thing as they were today. So this is this interesting question to ask what we can do. And I think for me, um, the work we're doing with cities right now, it's asking that question of, okay, well, your vision hasn't changed. I think that's one of the great things we learned about hundred resilient cities is, I don't think Pittsburgh's vision is new. It, it's what you had when you did the, you know, the thinking and did the process and made the strategy, it, it's a, it's a solid vision. It doesn't change with the shocks or stresses per se, but the question is what you're doing today and the opportunities that you have in front of you have changed. And one of the things that this crisis has done is it's reintroduced innovation and silo busting because we had to be innovative and different, right? So the city partnering with restaurants to put business, to put seating on the street, like that never happened before, but yet here we are rethinking streets as part of economic development. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm sure your transportation department has suffered as much as every other transportation department in the in the country. I was like, oh, we do cars, but now we're doing restaurants. Um, and the answer is, well, you always should have been doing that or been thinking a little bit more creatively about the space that you manage. Um, but I think the question for the new normal is what have we learned and how do we take it forward? So what's the thing that's going to come out of our COVID response that's going to be the same thing, the equivalent as impactful as women entering the workforce, right? That came yeah. out of World War II. Like, what is that going to be? And, you know, is it going to be we're only going to, you know, people talk about not working in at working from home one, two, three days a week. That's big. And that's a real big question mark for cities all over the country. Like, what's going to happen to this central business district? Because if that changes, then the transportation system has to change. But then what's going to happen to school? Right? You know, one of the things we know is there's no school days. Um, there's no snow days anymore because you just get on Zoom um, and things like that. So what's the definition of new normal would be really interesting. And I don't know, what are you guys seeing in Pittsburgh that kind of gives you some inkling into what the new normal might include? You know, one of the things um, that kind of comes to me a little bit is, you know, just and this is you'll you'll find this near and dear to your heart is that we've had a conversation with our procurement team 
over the, the, you know, the last few weeks around like developing more sustainable procurement practices. And, and, you know, just yesterday, you know, Rebecca, we haven't had a chance to kind of debrief on this, but we started to figure out different things that have happened because of the pandemic that are really good for operations. Um, you know, so like, for example, we were able to institute uh, a work from home policy, right? Something we didn't have before. Because of that, we have seen, uh, we we're also able to do uh, like a demand response program, which is an electricity curtailment uh, process. So we can, you know, reduce our consumption now based upon who's in the office and who's not on high consumption days. Um, but also like uh, contracting has changed. So because everybody's virtual, we've been able to institute an e-signature process. And it's, you know, something that like a lot of organizations had, had before the pandemic, but like for whatever roadblock that was part of the bureaucracy we didn't have, we've been able to kind of, you know, modernize a lot of processes that save money, uh, save time, uh, you know, and become just more efficient. So that's been interesting. I think in like nerdy uh, resilience speak, what what we've been doing is like this has allowed us to start to address our stresses a little in like more of a systematic way. So like last night, uh, you know, everything bubbled up to the surface, right? Obviously, like all the racial and economic inequities and some of our environmental issues have bubbled to the surface, the fragmentation. Um, but like last night, I, I attended a, a mobility workshop for the Oakland plan. Um, it was a whole workshop about the impacts of redlining and think and making sure that, you know, equity is integrated into any of the mobility planning that we're going to be doing in Oakland, which is like our downtown uh, or our, like our university center. It's like second to downtown uh, density wise. Um, but I, I think that like, uh, you know, now that everybody's sitting at home and thinking about all of these stresses and they are now real problems instead of just things that you could kind of push aside and, and think maybe weren't actually occurring. Um, I think that this has allowed us to, to like create the systems to address them so that we are better prepared for whatever, whatever's coming next. Well, this is, that's a, a, a good lesson um, to really think about what's the vision that you had before you had the crisis. And what really does need to change in order for you to meet that vision? And I will say one of the things that I've talked to cities all over the world about is you, one of the biggest things that has to change is, you know, you guys, chief resilience officers often get viewed as tink tinkerers. You're tinkering at the margins to get new things implemented. And that's not going to do it. And often mm -hmm. the place in the root of, and at the core of many government processes is their budget. And I think this is a really great opportunity and, and Grant's heard me mention this many times. I'm like, let me talk to the budget people. Is if you want to achieve some of these goals, you need to rethink um, your budgets. I'll give you an example here in New York. We did open streets where the city said, oh, if you want to close streets in certain communities, you can go do that because certain communities now need open space, right? So let's use streets. But they had a, they didn't have enough money to go put the barriers out every day because you know doing it over 10, 10 blocks in a hundred neighborhoods that's a lot of a lot of like person power, and so they asked the communities to to kind of participate. And what we found after the program was implemented is the places where it worked well ended up being places that had civic associations or 
um, business improvement districts or built in uh, kind of uh, assets they could lever to kind of manage the, that, that process of putting the barriers out. And those typically were neighborhoods that were more wealthy. So the city could have a policy now of saying, well, it worked in some neighborhoods, didn't work in others. Let's keep it in the neighborhoods that worked and let's get rid of it in the neighborhoods that didn't work. That, that's a very logical budget answer. Or the city could say, wait a second, what was the purpose of the program? The purpose of the program was to create more open spaces and communities across the city. And now the right answer in my mind would be saying, okay, well, it worked in these communities. Great, let them do what they're doing. Now these other communities where they need it and it didn't work, we need to create a new program. And then it becomes a question of, okay, well, who's going to pay to have someone come out and put those barriers? What's the partnership with the police department or the department of sanitation or other people that are already in the community? And that's going to take a level of communication, kind of silo busting yeah. partnership within agencies to get something done. That's interesting enough, happens in the worst part of COVID, but we can even see it now as kind of things feel a little bit more normal. We're getting into our habits. And this is this question of how do you not fall back into your habits, but how do you keep pushing towards that vision and keep keep the innovation going? You know, that that's an interesting point. I mean, just right before we, we hopped on here, I mean, one of the things that we're uh, starting to develop is a priority-based budgeting process. Um, so we're working with an organization uh, through the American Cities Climate Challenge with National Resources Defense Council. And and it's it started with a climate conversation, right? Like how do we start to introduce, you know, kind of the climate action priorities into the budgeting, but now it's become a more expansive discussion of like, well, there's a lot of things that, you know, maybe we don't need to do that in order to achieve, you know, goal X. Um, and how do you better allocate those resources? Um, what are some of those things like the, the structural tools like that, like priority-based budgeting, or you mentioned bids earlier, business improvement districts. Um, what are some of those implementation tools? Because that's like the focus of uh, uh, right. Resilient Cities Catalyst, right? Yeah, well, yeah. And I think, it, so this is the piece that I would add, this is how I tee it up. One, you need a vision, you need a purpose, you need a policy, you need something. So you need to know where you're going and then you need to have the ability and you have this very much, you have leadership that's willing to say, if this is where we're going, we're gonna get there. And so many cities have like visions, but they have no one actually pushing that vision. And I think, you know, on the environmental goals, there's that's a great one. I think over 400, 500 mayors by this point have committed to zero carbon, carbon neutrality or some type of environmental standard. And when you look at the budgets and what they're really doing, you can't see it, right? I'm sure you're having a hard time figuring out how you get there because it's like, again, tinkering at the edges as opposed to wholesale transformation. Yep. Um, so one is getting the vision, two is having the leadership that's gonna push it through. And that's all kind of bread and butter, 100 resilient cities uh, kind of stuff. And now we're talking about the next phase, which is, okay, how do you prioritize budgets? Because that feels like an easy place to go because you can get it in there. But I will tell you this, that only gets kind of the, the window dressing. The next level is how do you actually get it into implementation? And that's why talking about procurement is really exciting to me and as nerdy as it, it can be. But in procurement is really where the city lays out its goals and how it's gonna spend its money. So that's where you start to see, you know, literally um, the impact hitting, hitting the actions. The second place you see it is, is who's at the table designing the process, designing the projects. That becomes really important. Another piece that people overlook a lot, and this is something I spent a lot of time in my government career doing, 
is government as an administrative body creates lots of issues to the citizens. And one of the things that agencies forget about um, is their purpose. And they end up focusing on how to become efficient. And in the process of becoming efficient, they actually forget why they exist. And I saw this happen when I was at the Taxi and Limousine Commission. I'm like, why do we exist? They're like, we get licenses for drivers and we help the owners and the drivers make money. And I was like, no, we don't. They're like, what do you mean? That's, that's exactly what we do. And I was like, no, we help people get from point A to point B by giving them qualified drivers and a licensed vehicle that's safe. And if you can't make the connection to people that we've lost our way. And what we found is TLC, when I worked there, we had really lost our way because we forgot what we were doing. And what becomes hard when you add people and purpose is you start realizing that you need to redesign what you're doing um, because mm. what you've created is something that looks efficient, sounds good in a, in a uh, operations budget tracker report. We use less people to do the same job than we did last year. Unfortunately, no one says that the job you were doing is actually the wrong thing, right? It, you know, and, and that's the piece that I think people get lost. And now we have this great opportunity because of COVID where there's more data out there than ever before. And we can really see what the impacts are on different neighborhoods, different populations, different way that people are moving around. And it helps add some color to uh, that vision. So to me, it's the vision backed by strong leadership it's the ability to take that vision and put some numbers to it that allow you to then make decisions around budget, procurement, and purpose. And it's it's the skill set that you need within the agencies to remind the people who are doing the work that I'm not just doing it for to go from task to go from left side of the task to the right side of the task, but I'm doing this because it's going to change someone's life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's my mission. And I and I think those are the things we try to do at Resilient Cities Catalyst is by bringing people together and putting the people at the table who your policy is gonna impact can be transformative, right? And I think that's one of the reasons environmental work has been so hard is because it's, it's usually tied up in another project. We're redoing the building because it's broken very rarely. And, and, and it's, as you fix that building, what's the reason to do it? If it's making it environmentally friendly, at the end of the day, it's still gonna be a, a building. But if you're saying we're changing the building because it's going to be the anchor of the community that's now going to be the community center and it's going to be where everyone comes and gathers and does all this stuff. And by the way, we're going to make it environmentally friendly. That's great, the environmental friendly piece, but it's serving a greater purpose. And this is the piece that I think we get lost on is, is connecting those pieces together so that these projects have greater meaning. And we do that because we don't bring in the people or the people's or the purpose of the work is often just even left off the table altogether. All right, there was a good little rant. Um, <laughs> that was good stuff. What, um, where do you guys find yourself working now, like um, in terms of the catalyst? I mean, it, you, you've, it gives you the ability to, kind of, to work beyond like the 100 cities that were a part of like the 100RC network. Um, you know, wh where's, where's the path leading you? Like, is, it, is there a formula in terms of, the type of city or the type of problem. You also said you're working at like the subsidy level as well. So yeah. what does that look like? So, so we spent the last year kind of uh, working and um, getting out there and kind of re reconnecting and understanding, you know, what is this new body of work for Resilient Cities Catalyst that's different from 100 Resilient Cities. And, and you're, you know, 100 Resilient Cities, it was about working with 100 cities and, and kind of working through them to get to things that they wanted to do. And now Resilient Cities Catalyst, it's more about how do you bring resilience to a whole different host of different types of partners and working at different scales? So 
Um, right now, our biggest project is funded by the Hilton Foundation. It's out in California, and it's to fund the California Resilience Partnership, which is really asking this question of um, if states have real problems, but not all the resources, and regions have problems, but not all the resources, and cities have problems, but not all the resources, you know, wouldn't it be great if they were all working together, right? Mm. Pittsburgh, Allegheny County, and the state of Pennsylvania working together so that as you make your investments, they're common. They're shared, they're working towards common purposes and goals. And often those goals aren't really disconnected, but the way that the bureaucracy communicates through different levels of bureaucracy, it gets messy. So the work we're doing in California is, is gonna be at a regional level, communicating up to the state, through the state, back to the regions and back to the localities. We're working with LA and Ventura County to start and San Diego to start. And the original question in LA was if forest fires are the new normal, then What's that mean? What's the new normal? Again, a big shock. How do we rethink how we should be, you know, organizing ourselves? Then it's now it's now it's forest fires and economic recovery. In San Diego, it was a little bit forest fires, but it really started around coastal erosion and thinking about the asset of the water. What's the purpose of the water? Its proximity to the water. What does this mean for the community and the competing communities? But also, how does that tie into the economy and the big institutions that are here to really create the San Diego that people talk about, but no one's ever really defined. So that's how that work has started. And our hope is to add other pieces there. So one of the big problems we wanna address this year is begin working at that scale. And we're really excited for the Biden administration because um, they're talking about a whole bunch of capital beginning to flow back out of the federal government into states, into cities. And one of the things we wanna be a part of is ensuring that those that money is not spent on state of good repair or shovel ready projects, but is spent on building the state of future need, building the infrastructure that we're gonna need to make our cities, the like the places of urban productivity that we need them to be for the next 30, 40, 50 years. These are the, this is the moment we have is to take that capital infusion and create our future today. And if we're just filling potholes Filling, filling a road, I, I'm trying to think of a good road in Pittsburgh, but you know, almost all your roads were built, you know. It's tough. They're, they're optimized for the 1960s. And and right now we're fighting to put potholes in them. I guess Grant Street, right? What what should Grant Street do for the city of Pittsburgh in the future? And and is its future really just parking and 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 cars and maybe a bike lane? But the answer is probably not. It needs to do a lot more. And how do we get there? So this right. is this opportunity. And so this is for us, how that work plays in is how do you make sure you're getting, you know, the resilient benefit out of every dollar that's being invested. And I think one of the ways you do that is building with an eye towards the future as an eye towards making the past work better. The second problem we're working on is, um, you know, somewhere between, and I hope you agree with me because you're in the middle of this, is somewhere between city government and communities, something's missing. There's a layer missing. And when you really take mm -hmm. a step back and think about it, We've been informally tinkering with this for years with so business improvement districts, civil associations, community boards, all times of community things have happened, but we've never really cracked that nut. And if you think about it, um, so much money flows in from government into communities, but it comes in as silos. Yeah. Um, and when it shows up as silos, again, have we are we doing you know, we're being efficient, but are we actually achieving the purpose? And and one of the things this is, I hope this analogy plays out. If this is a community and these are the silos of government, right? What happens when your budget gets bad? Well, everyone has to cut back 10%. So what happens if you cut back 10% from a community that's on the edge? Well, 
maybe government can no longer support that community because you pulled right. back. And that's not the way you do budgeting, right? Because you could take half that money and hold up the community. You don't need to fix the potholes if, if it's not the most priority thing. And, and that's something that we think is missing. And what we think is there's a lot of great community-based organizations. There's a lot of great talent that's already in communities, but the way that they partner with government is missing, the way that government partners with them is missing. So we're gonna be working to help enliven that. You guys have done a lot of that work already and proven like case studies, but how do you do that on a more holistic and systemic change? And I'm, just before you jump in, the third thing we're working on <laughs> that we think is really critical is a lesson we learned at 100 Resilient Cities, which is, and you know this very well, there's no shortage of projects in cities and there's no shortage of money out in the capital world. Mm -hmm. But whether it's because of the way we budget or how complicated it is to go from idea to implementation, we're missing opportunities to actually do what's needed. And so we're gonna spend time working with cities to create the capacity that creates projects that actually connect to the funding, access the capital and get implemented as opposed to just kind of like projects and capital. I don't know, my analogy is outside the, you know, the um, used car sales people, there's those balloons that go like this. It's like <laughs> projects and capital are just flying around and maybe they connect, but they never really do. So those are the three things. Regional partnerships with local government to create, get resilience somewhere between uh, a new way of thinking about neighborhoods to drive resilience with city resources and partnership and, and ways to, to really drive those projects that everyone's already wanting to do, moving them forward. All right. You know, it, it's interesting. And it, there's two things that I, I wanna, just before you jump in, Rebecca, because I wanna pivot to you real quick in a second. There is a huge gap, I think, in terms of the ability. We don't have the structures. We as cities and communities are not taking full advantage of new structures to deliver on the projects that we need, right? You know, so that, that idea of kind of silos um, is one that's everybody drives and has a mission or purpose, like you were talking about earlier, to drive business as usual but it's very difficult to develop the next generation concept, right? Um, and that's, that's where, uh, you know, whether it's a business improvement district as, as an example, where you can reformulate the shape and structure of a, of a governance model, where you can bring, bring community, the public sector and the private se sector together to achieve a common purpose. Um, you know, that, that's something that I think cities need more fundamental uh, assistance in helping to develop and, and the agency to do so, right? Like that's the other piece. Um, because like we're seeing this, for example, in the, a lot of partnership with like our local utilities, when you're talking about issues of like energy transition, for example, um, you know, the gas, water, electric, steam utilities are built to deliver a 20th century model of energy, not the 21st century decarbonized model that we need, right? Um, so how do you kind of facilitate that? But Rebecca, you're, you're starting to step into some work right now in that space, like in Greenways, about looking at like new funding models, because this is another kind of example where like our Greenway system, for example, in Pittsburgh are, uh, you know, good designated from a planning standpoint. We know where they are. We know their purpose, but they're not resourced. And, and that's not anybody's fault per se, but there's no structure to fundamentally provide investment to them. And, you know, Rebecca, maybe share with Andrew a little bit about some of the things you're, you're stepping into now. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, so our greenway system is like 1,200 acres across the city. Um, and basically what happened was in the 1980s when we lost half our population, they consolidated a lot of the steep sloped hillsides uh, or places where the, the properties became vacant and consolidated them into like a permanent greenway easement. So for like recreation or conservation. Um, and then they were never resourced. So it was just a way to, then you could have stewardship groups come in and you know, uh, since 1980, over the past, what is that, 30 years um, or 40 years, it's been, uh, those stewardship groups have waxed and waned over time. Uh, invasive vines have come in, they're huge properties. So, um, you know, there's dumping issues. It's just become totally overwhelming for those stewardship groups. Um, and at the same time, the city has just not provided any resources towards those greenways. Um, but we're looking right now at like, um, and I think that it's exciting with, you know, new uh, economic models around around carbon, um, but there's an opportunity for to access some carbon markets. Um, so they're in poor health. You know, could we um, work with some of those carbon offsets that are maybe coming from, uh, you know, cap and trade systems like Reggie or, um, you know, other other companies that are interested in carbon offsets? Um, and pump those into the greenways to make them like the healthy spaces, um, you know, like the lungs of the city. Cause it is a lot of property. Um, it's just being, you know, choked out and there's no value attached to it. Yeah, um, yeah I think it, it's, it's kind of, great the other thing I'd say the idea too is like onshoring that money, right? Or reshoring that money. Whereas the carbon offset markets oftentimes go, you know, to, invest in good things in other places in other countries, but how can you do that like in your own backyard, right? Yeah. Literally. I mean, it's Literally a big, yeah, we have a big resilience issue there too, because that's, those are the properties where we're having, you know, landslides, which are then ending up on our roads. So, um, you know, in addition to, you know, the air quality benefits and the carbon benefits, like there's other safety issues as well um, that you could start to layer in there. I love this conversation, Rebecca. My only pushback for you on on all those stewardship models, like that's tinkering, right? And now you have this new money. It's tinkering because you're if the city really cared about the park, it would take care of the park. And mm -hmm. it's great to have stewardships, but if you're leaving it all to stewardship, then that's in my mind tinkering. Oh, yeah. done, it, it only has it only has it can only go so far. That that's all I meant. It's not bad, it just it's it's not the full answer. And now that you have this carbon offset model and you're trying to get money onshore that money, that's great. But again, it's not a like they're forcing you to take something the city should be valuing very high, which is greenway, open space throughout all the communities, and you're trying to find new money for it. So part of the question is like don't don't let your budget office off the hook if now in a time of COVID, right? Hey, open space is more important than ever. And in some communities, the only thing they have is like, we can close the street, but in some of these communities, we have these great parks, but they or could be parks. How do we really start to lay that foundation? And, and then the argument is, if the budget office being dynamic and you think about it over time, and you're strengthening neighborhoods and you're starting to, you know, bring in people who are gonna like respond to asset investments in the community. Um, maybe that helps fill vacant lots with new houses or vacant houses with new people. Um, I don't know. So I like what you're doing. I also just, it also makes me angry because it's something so important that the budget office gets off the hook. Like they're never like going to say- I think it's also about like bringing new money in. Well, speaking of steep <laughs> hillsides, 
uh, trying to make the connection from the steep hillsides and the greenways over to a gondola conversation. Yeah. Andrew, you have a, an affinity for gondolas, maybe from your time in Telluride? Uh, yeah, actually, it's really interesting. Um, the first time I was really in a, a real gondola is when I was in Jackson Hole, and you're going up this amazing, like, above cliffs and rocks and everything else. And you're just going up and you're just like, wow, this is an amazing technology. This is really cool. And, and it kind of always stuck in my mind. And, and then a couple of years later, I moved to the um, small town called Telluride that I mentioned earlier. And at the time, uh, my friends, my roommates were the bus drivers and they drive you from the town to like the other part of the, where they're building all the fancy stuff. So there was like a cute old cowboy town. And then there was like, this really interesting uh, fancy community where like people like Oprah had a house and <laughs> they, would, they would drive this bus through the mountains and they started building this gondola. And I'm like, wait a second, is the gondola going to take it to a new part of the ski hill? No. Is the gondola going to open up fresh acres of powder? No. It's going to take you from point A to point B and it's going to connect you. And it, and, and that's when I was like, wait a second, Gondolas are really interesting transportation systems. And here's one that would basically pay for itself over time because they get rid of the buses. So the buses, not just, I mean, we weren't even talking about environmental issues back then, but just the cost of running buses to make it somewhat reasonable for someone like Oprah to get in a bus and, and you know, take a ride, you know, <laughs> didn't make sense. And so that was really interesting. And when I came back, um, when I left Telluride, I, I was back in Philadelphia and I've always been thinking about transportation and different methods, but 9-11 um, happened and I was the lower Manhattan commissioner for transportation. And that um, was the first time I tried to build a gondola in New York and we needed to connect the path station on church street back to where um, the NASDAQ was and Amex and Merrill Lynch had their offices and the state DOT is like, well, we'll build a nice path. And at the end of the path, there's a highway and we'll build an outdoor elevator escalator combo moving road uh, to get people over. And it's going to cost like $65 million. And I was like, wait a second, what if we took that money and we built a gondola? Because it's actually interesting. There's, there's elevation change. And we built a, a gondola that went right through the middle of the World Trade Center site along a path that had no plans to be reconstructed, right? An old roadway path. And you built it right into the you know, there was a perfect place for it to land over in Battery Park City. And it would have cost, I think I priced it out at like $35 million. And I was like, let's build a gondola. And people thought I was crazy, but I was in charge. So I got to be a little bit crazy. Um, and ultimately I lost that battle, but that was the first time I, I dabbled with this idea of gondolas. But since then, I've really thought a lot about urban transportation um, and the role that, how hard it is to build subways and how hard it is to change the roadways but then you started to see cities all over the world, especially in Latin America, starting to build gondolas um, through the roadways. So they just kind of went up and over. And then I was like, well, wait a second, we have a history of that in New York. We had all these elevated subways. We still have elevated subways. So we're used to transportation existing at the third floor level or fourth mm -hmm. floor level. So why not, why not think about gondolas? And I started doing more research. And as you all know, it turns out gondolas are extremely safe. They're extremely economically uh, economical to put in. Um, they can move a lot of people because they're constantly running um, and they don't use a lot of energy. Um, the energy they use can be clean and um, it starts 
to become, it started in my mind to become a reasonable uh, tool that you could use when you think about an overall transportation network. And so for cities that have water like New York or cities that have water and hills like Pittsburgh, you can start thinking about gondolas being really interesting uh, solutions for some of the challenges that might be in place. And what was really interesting, they're so cheap to run that they're normally run like in parks as like amusements. But any place mm. they've been for transportation where real people use them and it takes real people from point A to a place they want to go in point B, um, they easily make money. And it's interesting to think about, it's like ski slopes make money, they have gondolas, uh, and they're only open like three months out of the year. Um, sadly in Pennsylvania now, probably, you know, eight weeks out of the year, six weeks. <laughs> um, what is it? Ski Liberty, Round Top. Uh, we have, we have Seven Springs at Hidden Valley. Out this That's it. I remember going there. That's like a real nice development there. Um, so uh, if it turns out that it's a really interesting option, and I think one of the things we talked about in Pittsburgh is, is leveraging this opportunity to either create amenities that bring people to parks, or even better, how do you create amenities that create bringing people to parks and opening up new park space, but at the same time in connecting them to the communities that typically can't get to those parks, but also thinking about ways of connecting people um, from one side of the river to the other, from top of hills to others. It would really open up communities and easily pay for itself. So what we're here today to talk about is, you know, creating the uh, gondola construction authority for Pittsburgh. Um, <laughs> that's going to be a self-funded, uh, self-generating thing. And all they need is a, a, a license. Actually, if you gave a, a company the right to do that, I don't know if you guys know this, most of the subways in New York City were built by private companies. And what they got was the right to build a subway and manage a subway for 100 years. And then they were able to go raise the capital. Now they all went bankrupt. That's another story. Um, but there's a way to build gondolas in a city like Pittsburgh, probably with no money from the city, but yet valued and governed by the city. So we create the uh, the G. If there's a takeaway from this conversation, we're gonna create the uh, the GCA, the Gondola Construction Authority. Yeah, Rebecca, you you've looked at this a little bit um, through the Hundred Resilient Cities program with the company Doppelmeyer. I mean, what were some of the <laughs> what, were, <laughs> what were some of the things that, that that we discovered in the research? That's a pretty nice actually model. Like that is sweet. See that going across the river right now, right? This totally. Is, this is a, this is the urban concept model by Doppelmeyer. This is run. This is a, a sample of a 3G 35 person gondola that is operational in Koblenz, in, in Germany. Germany. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you know, we did that study. What like two or three uh, time is? I don't know. Time is a suck, but uh, maybe three years ago with Doppelmeyer. Um, so they right. came and they looked, uh, we had a consultant that, you know, we took around on a tour and looked at our hillsides and um, we thought about a couple of different connections that we might be interested in. Um, we have a really good report that's on the city planning website um, that outlines what some of those options were. But what was interesting in Pittsburgh is like, we have the precedence for this. Um, so we have two, uh, two inclines, which is really the same technology uh, the cable transit technology. Uh, so, I mean, you know, people are excited about it. We talked to a lot of people, um, you know, we talked to our, our mobility department, but it's still thought of as like that crazy, um, kind of that like secondary, like, oh, well, that would be really neat. Um, you know, maybe someday it's very futuristic. How do you get, um, even though, you know, there's a precedence for it from, what is that, like 200 years ago now? I mean, those inclines are pretty old. Um, but you know, oh, yeah. how, how do you change? Plus. 
hundred plus. So like, how do you change? What is the mindset that needs to be changed to make it more mainstream? Because it is a viable, inexpensive, low carbon. I mean, low intensity. You don't have to do any paving. Transformation, transformative technology. Yeah. So like, what what's the what's the mindset in the community that needs to be changed? Because it seems like Pittsburgh is a place that's really primed for for this type of technology. So, so one thing might be interesting, what they did in Coblance is it goes across the Rhine and it goes from the town of Coblance right on the water and it goes up to a um, UNESCO historical site. And they built it to sell it to, it was in connection to the celebration of, I think of the town and they needed parking. So they were using the historical site, which had a lot of parking to get people down or maybe vice versa or a big flower show or something that they do up at the historical site. And the deal they made is that it would be temporary. Uh, yeah. So it might be interesting because these things are actually, you know, they're not so expensive that, you know, your issue would be getting across the river, but your rivers aren't wide enough. You, you don't have to put anything in the river. You just go over the river. Um, if something was temporary and it was like, let's do an experiment for 10 years, it would probably cost out as cost positive. And if the community wants to keep it, they could keep it. And what happened in Coblance is the community signed petition saying we want to keep it. And so now they, they've kept it and it's still there. And What's really interesting in New York, which started the urban gondola revolution, it's actually a tram that runs from uh, uh, Manhattan to um, Roosevelt Island. It was built as temporary until they had the subway stop. Um, and now they've built the subway stop uh, and it's, it's still there 35 years later. And who who operates still, that, Andrew? Who operates the, uh, Roosevelt, the Roosevelt Island, Island gondola uh, tram authority? which is operated by the Roosevelt Island Authority. It's like an authority within an authority, um, but they did set it up, it's self-contained, um, it sits outside and, it, and it, it kind of, it has a cost sharing piece with the Metropolitan Transit Authority. So you can use the same um, tokens and um, not tokens, but you know, transit passes. Um, but I would encourage if you're gonna put links on to your podcast, putting some links to uh, the transit systems in La Paz and Medellin um, and even Caracas, um, where they have these really exciting gondola systems. Um, and even London has one. London was built for the Olympics to go kind of from nowhere to nowhere. Uh, it was redundant to a subway line. It was built at like twice, 2x over budget. And it still makes money. Hmm. It's still positive on operations and it's able to raise enough funds to help pay for the capital. So there's a lot of really exciting opportunities here. And I think, you know, I think Pittsburgh, you know, very easily could have a system like this. And what's great about it, and one of the things that kind of, you know, one of the things that's great about Pittsburgh and one of the things that kind of, like, I just keep thinking about Pittsburgh, it's embedded in my mind, is you have an amazing bus system. That's great. Buses aren't the best. They're not, certainly not equitable. And when you drive around at night and there's someone waiting for a bus stop in 12 degree weather, just kind of out in the middle of wherever after they got off their shift, you know something like buses, like they don't solve all the problems. So gondolas right. are always running, they're always moving. Um, and that's one of the things I think that's really kind of interesting about them is, as opposed to even a bus, you need to run on a schedule uh, or a subway runs on a schedule. Gondolas, there is no schedule, it's just, it's happening. Um, There's a predictability uh, to them. Right, and they can run 20 hours a day, if not longer. And so I think it could be pretty interesting um, to think about for Pittsburgh. And it's a conversation that um, has certainly got lost in the COVID shuffle. 
Yeah. But maybe as we think about some of the neighborhoods that need to be better connected or better yet, thinking about how people are now spending time differently in Chicago, maybe making connections between neighborhoods and open space is a higher priority and something that could be pursued. Let me know. I'm in. Let's let's uh, we can make a note and have a, a special gondola episode. Maybe we can get the team from uh, Doppelmeyer to come in and join us and uh, maybe do a little 101 for everyone and we can circulate it around. That'd be terrific. Yeah, I like that. So, right. so well, we're, we're, we're coming up on time here. Andrew, I want to uh, thank you for, for joining us here today. Um, it's been terrific just to catch up a little bit and always uh, creates a bunch of notes and uh, additional conversations that we want to have with you, of course. Um, but thanks for joining us here on the Grant Street Experience, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks for the chat. It was great to see you both. Love chatting always about these complicated city problems and, and always following the great work you're doing in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, and I saw the mayor's quote the other day, just like, here we go again. Uh, so, <laughs> so there's always more to do, uh, and there's always someone fighting against it. So keep up the good work. Definitely. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you as always. Um, and thank you to all you guys listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. And thanks to the Pittsburgh cable team for your production capabilities. Um, we will be talking to you soon here at the Grand Street Experience. So thanks much and have a great day. Take care.